0: Sick of the fatigue and fog? Fed up with the unpredictable flares? Hangry from the super restrictive diets? Hello, and welcome to the Crunchy Allergist podcast, a podcast empowering those who, like me, appreciate both a naturally-minded and scientifically-grounded approach to health and healing. Hi, I'm your host, Dr. Kara Wada, quadruple board certified pediatric and adult allergy immunology and lifestyle medicine physician Sjogren's patient, and life coach. My recipe for success combines anti-inflammatory lifestyle, trusting therapeutic relationships, modern medicine, and mindset to harness our body's ability to heal. Now, although I might be a physician, I'm not your physician, and this podcast is for educational purposes only.
1: I would like to officially welcome everyone to the very first Crunchy Allergist Book Club author event, and I am thrilled and deeply honored to welcome Tana Jackson Nakazawa, one of my absolute favorite authors. She's the author of four books that explore the intersection between neuroscience, immunology, and emotion, including Girls on the Brink, but also The Angel and the Assassin, which was how I learned of her work, which was named one of the best books of 2020 by Wired Magazine. Her other books include Childhood Disrupted, which was a finalist for the Books for a Better Life Award. In her writing on health and science, she's received Lifetime Contribution Awards, and the National Health Information Award. She's also the creator and founder of the narrative Writing to Heal program, Your Healing Narrative, which uses a process called neural re-narrating to help participants recognize and override their brain's old thought patterns and internalized stories and create new, more powerful inner healing narrative that calms the body, brain, and the nervous system. Her work's been published pretty much everywhere, (laughs) and she has been on all of the popular shows, including the Today Show and NPR, NBC and ABC. She regularly speaks at universities and with healthcare professionals, especially. So thank you, Donna, for joining us. And
2: here with you. Oh, yeah.
1: So I wonder if you might just set the stage. I think Most of our group probably has listened maybe to our initial conversation, but maybe they haven't. And in the opening chapters of the book, you discuss how we're living in this toxic time for girls. Can you explain why that is and what's going
2: on? Sure. First of all, let me just set the stage by saying that girls are developing depression and anxiety at earlier ages than we've ever seen before, often by age 12 or 13, And there's always been a gap between boys and girls suffering from depression, but that gap has been growing with girls being several times more likely than boys to develop depression and anxiety around puberty. We know that, for instance, girls are 2.6 times more likely to have symptoms of anxiety after puberty. And in 2021, the CDC showed that the rate of suicide attempts and ideation had gone up 51% in girls and 4% in boys. So something's been going on for a long time, but it seems to be getting worse. The gap between female mental health and male mental health around puberty is getting worse. Now, boys, we'll talk about boys. I'm the mother of a son and a daughter. I love boys. Boys present more with other, the other things like ADHD or behavioral issues. But for a long time, it's been a question what's going on with girls as this trend gets worse and girls are developing depression at earlier ages and in greater numbers. And to be clear, this isn't about diagnosis. This is about symptoms that are real and tangible, like not being able to get out of bed, like a complete loss of all Interest in one's activities or life, periods of weeks or months marked by hopelessness, guilt, despair. We're not talking a bad week, and we're not talking about girls just being more likely to say, I don't feel good. So I want to set the stage for that. So when I talk about a toxic era for girls, there's so much happening in girls' lives at earlier and earlier ages. And for right now, I just wanna talk about what's happening for all of our kids, right? Cause it's a toxic era for all kids, boys, girls, anyone on the gender spectrum, wherever anyone is. So we have seen, we know, we don't have to look around to see that the world is heating up politically, socially, environmentally, hello. This is true for girls and boys, there's more hierarchical competition at much younger ages. Middle school is the new high school and fourth grade is the new middle school. We have these earlier and earlier benchmarks for kids to succeed faster academically and in their extracurriculars. At the same time that 60% of kids say they're afraid their school will be the next site of a school shooting. It's a peer research finding from this past year. And we've had a pandemic. Let us not forget about that. But for girls, some other things are also happening. As we have this advent of social media, which you're supposed to be 13 to log on to social media, many girls start using social media at the age of eight. They may not be on a smartphone. Families may not have given them a smartphone, but those little Apple watches can show 60,000 images a day. Kids can access social media and the media in general through Apple Watches, whether it's a smartphone or the computer or a watch. Images have a really much more profound impact on the developing brain than words. We have studies where you can show dozens of images, but at the same time be saying the opposite message with words. And the brain will clock the imagery that's just much more powerful for the brain so as social media comes in and all of this competitive hierarchical stuff is happening for kids at earlier ages in a world that's really feeling unsafe we also see that girls when they start with social media they're much more likely to be critiqued disliked encouraged to take their clothes off Girls in general in the media are being increasingly sexualized at younger and younger ages. There's very little distinction between being a girl and being a woman in our culture. And the more a girl poses as a woman before she's developmentally even ready to consider what that means, the more like she gets, the more popular she is, the more social cachet she has. And this is all, of course, because we're in a very sexist society. So anyway, we can get to this in a minute, but where this all becomes more problematic for girls is that as puberty comes in and estrogen comes surging on board, estrogen can be a potent immune amplifier. And so we can get into that and talk about why that's an issue, especially with puberty happening at earlier ages, but I'll just pause there and let all that kind of sink in. It's hard for me to fathom
1: my oldest turned seven in about three weeks. And so thinking about her having a smartphone or being on social media is just really scary to think about, but I'm already seeing hints of She's in first grade and I was already seeing hints from other moms with some of that competitive behavior that I think personally, I'm a little bit more attuned to because the house I was raised in was very focused on grades and getting straight A's. It was, it was not just encouraged, it was expected. And that's not to say that expectations aren't to some degree helpful, but I also do see a lot of the pressure that oh, yeah. placed on me growing up. I've had this concerted effort that I've wanted to have in my parenting just to let our kids
2: be kids for a while. Oh, or two. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I had a friend say to me once every time your kids get really good at something and they start like winning awards or being whatever, first you're like, oh, try something else. I remember her saying that to me. Am I thinking, do I really do that? And it really wasn't that so much as there were lots of things they wanted to do and try. Yeah. And they wanted to sure play this and try that. And I just felt these years are for trying all those things. And also a big part of my reason for not pushing them to just do one sport or thing for. 14 years was because if you did that, all of a sudden, you're not just doing an after school sport, you get invited to do a club team. And then the club team, you have to travel all around the country. In fact, with my son, it was a sailor around the world. Like you're expected to travel and it gets, it just felt so not childhood to me. So you're those years ahead of you, coming in through those middle years. It's just so interesting. And I'm not saying that I handled all of that, but I did. My daughter was invited for this very big club, club lacrosse team in Maryland. And I sat down and I said, do you want to play in college? She yeah. said, no, no, I don't think so. It's like, okay. So yeah. anyway, we diverge. No, and I saw a
1: statistic just this week. I was doing a little kind of research for some social media posts. And it was to the effect that you spend 75% of all the time that you'll spend with your children by the time they're 12 years old. That's right. My husband and I, we have our first date night in, I don't know how long, scheduled yeah. for tomorrow night, but that was something that came up in our little discussions during the week that I think is going to be really the framework for ongoing discussion tomorrow. But yeah. Yeah and it, I know in our initial conversation we had delved into some of the the interface of some of the stressors that children are under and some of the Discussion in the adverse childhood experiences and sources of stress. So maybe that's a natural segue into discussing a little bit more about Yeah.
2: So when I hinted about what's happening with puberty coming in earlier, to set the framework, the developing brain is really asking one question am I safe or not safe? And everything falls out from there. Am I safe or not safe? Psychological safety is key to the developing brain because the brain wants to know what kind of world am I growing up into out here? What am I going to be faced with as I go grow up and enter this world? And the more that the answer to that question is you're not safe, the brain begins to factor all of that into how geared up it stays to fight off the next bad thing. And the more geared up the nervous system is to respond to the next bad thing, the more we begin to see that ramping up of the stress immune response into just colloquially what people might recognize as fight, flight, freeze, right? The more we begin to see that sympathetic nervous system caught on high And over time, that leads to inflammatory factors. So step back from that and that idea that, okay, the brain is trying to figure out, am I safe or not safe? And at every moment, as you get toward puberty, it is almost like a computer chess game, taking into account all the past moves on the board to figure out what should those next moves be. Do I need to go here? Do I need to go there? If the brain is facing that moment, going into puberty based on all of its adversity and all of its traumas and all of its unsafety, if it's going into that moment saying we are definitely not safe, the brain is going to wire up to be prepared. What that looks like in the brain is the exacerbation of pathways we associate with depression and anxiety and even self-harm. So now bring in puberty, it comes in and you know it better than anyone that we begin after puberty, you see a big difference in the way in which, in the race at which males and females develop things like autoimmune disease, right? We know that has a lot to do with estrogen coming in and giving this, in a good scenario, an evolutionary advantage to women. Estrogen is that, whoa, it is a master regulating hormone. It is the bee's knees. It's fabulous. It allows us as women to do everything a guy can do, a man can do in the same 16, 18 hour day or whatever, in a smaller body with smaller organs and still make room for uterus. It's so groovy. And we think of it as associated with like that thrum of excitement or hormonal surges, but it's so much more, it's actually the brain's master regulator for females coming across puberty. When it comes in and the female brain has clocked that there is a lot of uncertainty Being sexualized at a very early age, seeing the kind of sexism and misogyny that lurks around every corner, being critiqued and disliked on social media, seeing, hey, I better have straight A's and worry about my extracurriculars, my club sports by the time I'm eight, all of that, puberty comes in and puberty amps up that stress threat response. It magnifies it. If a girl feels safe, that's great. Estrogen comes in, and the female adolescent brain is got superpower. It's like the superpower brain on this universe. It's highly flexible. It's responsive. That corpus callosum between the left and right sides of the brain is really thick, and that allows that kind of multitasking. Uh, that spidey sense we think of knowing what's going on in the world around us, the adolescent female brain is full of all those wonderful things. But in the face of too much adversity, in the face of too much stress, in the face of unrelenting stress, we see that estrogen and that amped up stress response can flip from an evolutionary advantage to a disadvantage. It can begin to exacerbate that stress immune response In a way that can lead to greater pruning in the brain more than we want to see, which we can see on brain scans can be associated with depression and anxiety and self-harm. And I will wrap this by saying we have one other issue in modern toxic times that is making all this even more worrisome and complicated as if all that weren't enough. Puberty is happening several years earlier in girls. I think since 1800, it's actually happening six years earlier. And this magnifies everything that I've been speaking about because when puberty comes in early before adolescence, so think of it this way it used to be that adolescence came in and then puberty. So adolescence came in, you had four or five years to experience the world, have adult support, figure out how to respond to stressors in your environment, know when to ask for help, know who to be friends with and who not to be friends with. But puberty, this big rush, this big reorientation of the brain, this remodeling of the brain is happening before adolescence. And what that means is that puberty is coming in. This big stress response is coming in years earlier before the brain has had a chance to learn all of those things. And this means that the brain has not yet wired and fired up to put the distress in context, being sexualized really early, the brain doesn't know what to do with it. Mm. Being critiqued or made fun of or early sexualization or whether or not it matters if you won that prize or didn't win that prize or how to respond in tricky friendship situations. The brain needs time to wire and fire up in healthy ways, know how to ask for help when it's an overwhelm. But this reverse In a toxic era, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. And
1: we've been seeing the discussion of that, even thinking back to, I graduated medical school in 2010. And there was discussion even then as I was becoming a pediatric resident about needing to talk to eight and nine-year-olds not knowing what was going on with starting their periods. And the discussion at the time was thought maybe more related to changes in diet, improved diet and nutrition. But now the plot thickens, there's so much more
2: oh, it's pretty going on. Yeah,
1: And I just, I wonder too, this is where I start hypothesizing or asking the questions of, how do things like epigenetics and this occurring over several generations, how is that going to compound ongoing changes in our microbiome? In addition to living amongst this, we talk about the exposome, all the things around us that influence our health and our bodies. And so much has changed.
2: Yeah. It's like a matrix and every everything that was in the matrix when I was a child and you were a child, all those conditions have changed and why think of all this, it's really, it can't really be surprising that our girls are struggling when you put all of this together.
1: Yeah. We went, I went with Charlotte to her kindergarten graduation field trip, which was to like our science and industry type museum. And they have this section of museum where it's 1865, And so they have that little area with kind of like old Western town, but then it moves into 1965 and it's essentially what would have been my mom's childhood with the rotary phones and the old radios and first TVs and everything. And I don't think she quite understood how in awe I was thinking about how different her childhood was compared to grandma. Yeah. It just is a
2: different, it's a different time yeah really all the skills that that we applied or were applied raising us or that we thought we could apply raising girls in this mm-hmm. world at this time we have to rewrite the rule book we have to rewrite our rethink our toolbox yeah. and it's very important that we get a grip on this science that stakeholders understand it and can utilize it across all their levers of power to bring more attention to helping girls who I've been doing some work with children's hospitals and gave a talk for them recently. And they're facing huge numbers of adolescent girls in their ERs who can't get out of the emergency room to get a bed. They're just waiting in the ERs for days and weeks. And it's by and large, young female or young girls hitting puberty or adolescent girls. And so we have a really big problem and understanding this science, of course, I'm a science journalist, so I'm partial, I think is really helpful because although the part we've been talking about is scary and overwhelming, especially as a mother of a daughter, I think what I've learned over the years is twofold. One. I would like to say we don't need the science to get off our butts and do more about it. I would like to say that's not really necessary. It's enough just to know that girls are really suffering and sitting in emergency rooms in hospitals, wanting to die and unable to get beds. That would be enough for us to just really rethink how we're doing things. But often we need the science to catalyze change. And also I think once we have it, It organizes our brains as adults a little bit and helps us to stop walking around going, what, what? Is it my imagination? Are the girls really struggling at my daughter's school? I've talked to so many school principals and school nurses and pediatricians and putting a frame on this is very helpful for catalyzing those meetings and those conferences to do something about it.
1: And that's, you know, what I really appreciated about this book too, was that the whole essentially second half of the book are tools that we can use and go back to as we need them time and time again. 100%. 100%. Although it's written for girls, I plan on using them for my son too. (laughs) No.
2: And I really, I was very clear about that in the book. I say it over and over again. Many of these boys are struggling too. Of course they are. But why did I write about girls? I wrote about girls because the statistics don't lie. We're seeing this shooting, this rapid escalation in a decline in female mental health throughout puberty and adolescence. It's been getting notably worse since 2012. It existed before the pandemic. But the other reason I wrote about girls is that I've written, as you noted, a few books about the brain and the nervous system across health and development in the face of adversity. And all of that research was largely based on male research models. So it was only in 2016 that the NIH requested very nicely that researchers begin to look at the intersection of stress and development in the female brain. Before that, researchers wanted to keep those pesky hormones out of it. So you know that preclinical research is what we use as a basis for translational and clinical research. And so all the work that we have understood about adversity and development was based on this male research model. And when we began to look, when researchers began to look at the female brain, they saw very different effects of stress on the epigenetic shifts that occur in the brain globally in the female brain versus the male brain. So I won't bore people with the cool dust 16 and a bunch of the other ones, but we didn't look. We assumed what applied to boys applied to girls. It turns out it doesn't at all. And that said, many of the principles in the book, the antidotes and strategies can be applied to girls or boys. And additionally, look, if we make the world better for girls, we want to make it better for all children, right? There's no selectivity here. Mm-hmm. And if we make the world better For boys, that will naturally make the world better for girls because boys grow up with so much toxic masculinity. They're expected to be manly, which often means put girls down or be more interested in sex than connection or not be too gentle or not be soft-spoken. And they're often applauded for being those ways and made fun of when they're unmanly, which is supposedly caring about women or not talking about their body parts and so on and so forth. I could go on. So toxic masculinity, we can use many of these strategies to help also address, let's just say sexism and stress across health and development for girls and boys.
1: The one thing I worry, and I alluded to, I think in our first conversation was, is this maybe a harbinger for what's to come 10, 20 years down the line? Is it comes to increased autoimmune yeah. concerns?
2: Is there I, any I really, kind
1: of discussion with the, with the basic scientists with that?
2: No, that because, you, cause- you know. That the future is a hypothesis too far for any neuroscientist, for sure. I do think it is a concern. And anyway, I don't know. I certainly don't like where we are right now. And I hope we're able to make a change.
1: Yeah,
2: I think that it was, we all
1: have our turning points, right? And I think mine came at this crux of being, diagnosed with Sjogren's about the same time that Josie was diagnosed with egg allergy. And like this, oh geez, like we've never had food allergy in the family. We've had a little asthma, runny nose stuff. We've never really had autoimmunity until this generation. So we need to take a good hard look as a family just to see what is the science and what are those things that we can modify to try to help do the best we can with what we know, which is what we try to do as parents. And as you've discussed with these different principles and tools, there are some strategies when it comes to how we interact with our children that, that can help build them up. Yes. And science behind it to minimize some of that potential for increasing the trauma that we could expose them to.
2: Yes, absolutely. Any uh, particular ones you want to start with or you want me just mm-hmm. to jump in?
1: I'm curious if there's like, a few in particular that you have found in your life. Yeah. We all pick ones that I'm sure that sure. resonate.
2: But I think one of the ones that really stood out the most for me was a finding out of the School of Public Health at Hopkins, which showed that pretty much the single greatest predictor for flourishing across puberty and adolescence was being able to talk to a parent about anything, no matter how hard. This turned out to be kids about whom this was a yes. They had a 12 times higher rate of flourishing. And that really stood out for me because honestly, you don't see that every day as a reporter. And I spent a lot of time with a researcher and that led me, Christina Bethel at Hopkins. And that led me to go a lot further down that path of child-parent connection and what that looks like. And of course we know, and I've reported for a long time, as have many other people in the trauma reporting space, that single relationship with a safe, stable, nurturing caregiver is really the most important predictor for childhood flourishing. But when I talk about childhood connection in this way, what I'm talking about is being able to, to turn to a parent, no matter how hard the thing that is happening may be. And this requires a lot of pre-work on the parent's part. It's not something that just happens naturally. We wish it would, and that would be great, but it turns out that we have to have created thousands of moments of psychological safety From early on. And you know what gets in the way of that? Our own reactivity and our own stories of trauma. Our own past can get in the way in family moments. Look, I raised two children, you're raising three children. It's hard work. It's a wonder you get anything done ever. It's really hard work. And it would be not human to never get frustrated or never feel overwhelmed. That is simply not human. However, learning how to be in those moments so that you're not so busy soothing yourself that you can't soothe the child in front of you, learning to piece together, and it's why I teach my narrative writing course, right? We delve into that past, into those connections between the past and the present, so that you have come away with a group of quick tools at the end of this very deep dive to help you go, oh, I'm here again. Here's what I do when I am here so that we can come back and ground and not be knocked over quite so much by parenting moments or by family life when we're in overwhelm, which of course we are in overwhelm and get back and not wobble quite so much And it turns out that is really important to developing that parent-child attunement or what researchers even call sense of biosynchrony. And it means that when your child comes to you with something hard, and of course at five, that's going to be a lot different than at 15, you're able to enter into that state of biosynchrony where every cell of you is able to be calm, even when you hear difficult things and offer that calm from literally every cell of you to every cell of them. And so that really stands out to me because it begins with us. It really begins with us. And of course I have 15 other strategies in the book, but I think that's a good one to start with because wow. we really dig in and do something about that. Yeah, it's the
1: ripple effects. And I think that reminder that filling our own cup first really is critically important. It's understanding not selfish.
2: Our- No, and understanding our own story, which takes time and work. And this Mm -hmm. is way beyond self-care, folks. This isn't going for Mm -hmm. a pedicure, and it's way beyond even meditation, although I am a big meditator and highly recommend it. It's really about actually understanding your own story in a way that allows you to know that you've entered that place in which you're not as regulated as you need to be to help your child find that regulation that she needs and that sense of safety. And this isn't about coddling your children or being helicopter parents. Kids need a little wobble, right? You've got to step back and let them solve some of their own things. But often they can't even figure out how to solve things because... We as parents are jumping in our dysregulation as the detective or the fixer or the judge. Like, where did that happen? Who is there? We've got to call them. Let's go. Where did you leave it? And when they're little, that's fine. They fall and skin their knee. You've got to be the fixer. But as kids get older, we need to be providing that psychological safety so that we have to get quiet so they can feel safe and know that they can tell us anything without our jumping in. And I have hundreds of scripts in the book and I'm a writer, I'm a science writer, but (laughs) I put those in there because it can be so hard. And I've had moms tell me on book tour, Oh, I have index cards on the inside of my kitchen cabinets because I tell her, Oh, I've got to get a cup of tea. Let's have tea. And I make, and i look at my cheat sheets inside my cabinet doors. And then I come back and I'm like, that sounds really hard. And just reground. What do you think? What do you think? I'm going to tell you what I think, but First, I really want to hear what you think, because what you think right now is so much more important than what I think. Just having this language to come back to over and over in every situation, it was really important to me to put that in the book, because when we're knocked off course in our lovely little lives, running around with our kids, doing our work, our brain goes offline It is not going to grab the right words when we're thinking, who did that to my kid? Or what did my kid do? Or how did this happen? Or I've got to call somebody. The brain is off, it's gone, it's in fight, flight, freeze. And over time we can retrain ourselves, our minds, our nervous systems to be that state of regulation, that is helpful to the developing brain.
1: If it's okay with you, I'd love to open up the floor since we have a smaller intimate group. I know Dr. Allie and I have been talking beforehand a little bit. And Sure. We have a few
2: more minutes. Let's do it. Yeah. Hi, I'm Allie McKinney. Oh, hi, Allie. Nice yes. to meet you. Nice to meet you too.
3: So I worked as a As a pediatric and adolescent HIV specialist in Malawi for seven years, and we did a ton of work. When I moved there, one of the biggest things that was a countrywide problem was that the girls were forced out of school at age 12. They were either working in the family, married, getting into transactional sexual relationships to support their families. And the rates of suicide, depression and whatnot amongst adolescent girls was huge. One of the big things that we actually realized early on is the word adolescence didn't exist in Tshaywa, their language, it's at age 12, you become an adult. And so a lot of our programming turned into creating that space for that childhood to happen and for kids to have a place to actually feel like kids again. But really interestingly, our psychosocial department did a study similar to the one that you described and came up with the exact same conclusions that the biggest things that were needed for particularly our girls to thrive was psychosocial safety
2: Mm -hmm. and
3: a stable guardian at home. Yes. And then very interestingly too, encouraging the kids to own their story. Most of them were born with HIV and were very, held a lot of shame to it. And so there's a word in Chichewa that I love or phrase it's called olimba Mtima and it means courage of the heart.
2: Oh, that's beautiful.
3: And that was something that the kids learned to claim and to share their stories. And so I look at that when I move back to the US, and I'm like, oh my gosh, we've gone backwards. Here I am going over to Malawi to try to open up this adolescent space mm-hmm. and I come home and it's closed.
2: Yeah, that
3: had to be quite
2: difficult. Um,
3: it's very eye-opening. My brother-in-law is a middle school principal. My sister's a middle school counselor. And we talk about this all the time. And for their families, the kids were not allowed to have phones until they got into middle school, weren't allowed to have social media accounts. The parents cut very tight restrictions on it. And they thought, okay, this is the solution to allowing them to maintain, hold on to childhood for longer. But then they found out once they got into like junior high area, their kids were left out of everything. So they go to their friend's house, all these inside jokes about them at school. And now their kids are equally sad and upset and whatnot because they've been left out. Oh. And so this is a conversation that we're having together, the three of us of what is the solution? How do we create the movement so that it happens with everybody or community moving together? so that some of the kids aren't left behind and left out of this. What I'm hearing and sensing from you is that a lot of the problems of social media. I think social
2: media magnifies the toxic sexism that has always been there. So it's really, even without social media, girls are pretty smart. They can read a newspaper headline and see that they're going into a world with a lot of misogyny and a lot of unsafety for young females. I think that- Mm -hmm. Anybody who grew up female, certainly me, even a long time ago, Mm -hmm. certainly understood that there was a lot of physical and psychological unsafety for me coming of age. Now imagine just having that poured on you and dumped on you. 247 from the world at large i say toward the end of the book when the conclusion what i want is for men in power everywhere to think about this think about what this means we're changing the developing female brain and we're not offering enough of the supportive look if cycle if if psychological toxicity keeps increasing even a really well-loved girl's sense of self is going to diminish over time in the face of this very widespread toxic messaging. And as these levels of toxicity rise for young people and boys as well, we need to increase psychological safety. So the reason I broke it down into these 15 tools across every lever of power is because We need to be building out all of these things to up the psychological safety so that it's higher than the toxicity. And to speak to your question about social media, we really want to make connection in the real world more compelling and exciting in real life, as kids say, IRL. (laughs) More compelling, more inviting, more magnetizing, more enriching with connection than the suck of that other world. So, we have a lot of work. And I guess my role in all of this as a science journal is really to create headlines and a conversation. Obviously, I'm not a pediatrician, I'm not a school nurse but I can get a combo going in such a way that it can trickle into all of those areas and give the talks. And that's really my hope so that in every area across those 15 antidotes, all of which involve adults at one stage or another, many of whom are men, men ask themselves, is this really the world that I want for girls? And of course, let's include the men who are running big tech, right? Because all big tech is run by a lot of men at the very, all the big social media platforms are owned by men. And to just start asking that question, is this sense of psychological unsafety that's rising, especially for girls, is that acceptable for me as a man, whether I'm running a big tech company or in the way that I talk to a girl on the street, or the way in which I respond to her post on social media. How can I, as a man, a boy, increase that sense of belonging and mattering? How do I do it? And in the book, I think one of my other favorite antidotes is just Helping girls reverse engineer sexism by raising our girls when it's safe to speak back by modeling for them how we speak back and we break it down. We just break it down. So I know our time is short, but I just I hope that answers your question a
3: little bit. No, it does. An interesting thing when you talk about the boys. So in Malawi, this for our girls to get on like control and to come and get educated once they're like late teens on relationships and all these types of things and our boys came to us and they're like the girls are getting all this education on the importance of negotiating common use and whatnot and it's supposed to be out their empowerment and teach us how to empower them that's need to be if you, you you got a problem then teach us how to respect girls
2: I love that um, and again it was like huh. oh
3: this shouldn't be rocket sciences but these kids came to us and they're like look like i don't know how to respect a girl i don't have any models role models wow. showing me how to do it and
2: um, what i said earlier is by lifting girls and the way we educate them we automatically begin to influence boys but if we add boys into the picture if we make the world better for all children and more respectful it's going to affect girls and boys if young people regardless of sex feel seen and that they matter and belong as they are, just as they are, we will see less cultural toxicity and sexism because boys will already know that they matter for who they are. And there are just so many ways to build this out across childhood and adolescence.
1: I agree. I wanted to make sure if Arlene or Denise, if you have, if you want to either raise your hand or I'll mute or don't know if you had anything to ask or to add. If not, I know we can keep chatting. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure we can fill another eight minutes. I think there, Kara, like what you were saying, when you
3: talked about the autoimmune, I don't know, like we belong to a group of physicians with female physicians that have autoimmune disorders. And I think for us, it's been shocking to see how many women in there have autoimmune diseases and how many of us can trace back to having different either adolescent or early traumas in our life, medical school being one of them and training. And that's always, I think a very hot topic of debate amongst our group is, was this the chicken or the egg?
2: Yeah, no. And we have very good evidence. I mean, Delisa Fairweather is the scientific mother of the research into stress and autoimmune disease in females. And she was able to show that the association between being female and certain categories of ACEs was as big a predictor for developing not just an autoimmune disease, but an autoimmune disease so serious that you ended up in the hospital as a young woman or as a woman. That link was so profound in females that it was double in males who faced the exact same number of ACEs or categories of adversity. So for each category of adversity that a girl faced growing up by the age of 18, each category, her chance of developing an autoimmune disease so serious she was later hospitalized increased by 20%. For boys, it was 10%. Now here's what's interesting. Other researchers have found A similar relationship between categories of adversity for girls and their likelihood of developing neuropsychiatric issues Mm -hmm. is similarly much higher among girls with the same categories of adversity and the same number of ACEs compared to boys. So we know that across puberty, everything we've been saying earlier, puberty- More stressors, this rewiring of the brain and remodeling Mm -hmm. in an inopportune time in the face of magnified stressors is a really bad equation. And again, we have to get on it as the adults because this is a world that we have created for our children.
3: When I think too, that something that again, this comes up in our group a lot in discussion, and this was your like entire first book on the role of microglial cells in. Actually, that
2: was my creating... fifth
3: book, but I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. But, the, but just yeah. that relationship of mental and the hippocampus and development, that connection. I think that we at least in medical school were always taught there's not really that connection between the brain and the
2: body. Crazy. So um, crazy. I can't believe that yeah. they still get away with that when. It's just been overturned now for almost 10 years. That idea that the brain is immune privileged has been so completely overturned. Kara, this is your area.
1: No, I think it's bonkers because I finished my fellowship and I took my boards in 2016, 2016, 2017. And I would hazard to say that microglial cells were maybe mentioned five times in our basic immunology textbook. I actually could probably look at this This is the clinical one, but the other ones paperback in at the office. But it just it hadn't trickled down there yet. And our fellows still granted allergy immunology, we don't see quite as much autoimmunity. It's a piece of our clinical puzzle, or not puzzle, but clinical load, but not as much as rheumatology. But that said, it's it still should be a part of their education. And so their associate program director that's on my mission is to bring in so that they can (laughs) be more informed because the reality is it neurology and immunology and rheumatology it's pretty siloed and yeah uh, I think the pandemic kind of added to some of that because we weren't milling about the hospital as much and more closed
2: off and so specialties have been siloed for a long time now and that's one of the things i do is jump jump silos and run around and go wait a minute over here i was in this lab and they're <laughs> doing this how does that intersect with what you're doing it, would it be would it be right to say that because of x then y and well, yeah of course oh, okay doesn't that mean this and just being able to report on that and hopefully kind of bring that understanding together, did but
3: yeah. Oh, so did you encounter in, when you were putting all of the research together and interviewing people that were in this field, now that we've, but we've identified that the ACEs are directly related to the autoimmune, is anyone trying to Do intervention programs early in either childhood or adolescence? Oh, sure. Yeah,
2: there are many. And then trying to not for autoimmunity in particular, but there are many hundreds of prevention programs. Since I wrote my book on ACEs, childhood disrupted, it's just staggering. It's just, it's a very common term now. And it's this idea of preventing trauma across development has become, go to Instagram. It's like Trauma, trauma, and I go, wow, why couldn't we have done this six years ago? I have to go in a minute yeah. for long reasons, but this was thank so you. fun, guys. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> such a pleasure. I'm such a fan. Fan isn't the right word, but uh-huh. I love your heart and your tone and your just, your just good, warm spirit. So we've never met, but it's a pleasure to work with you.
1: You too. And we will meet at one of these conferences one of these
2: days. 100%. Yeah. Allie, great to meet you. Everybody you
1: else. Take
3: good
2: care. Thank you for joining us, everyone. Pleasure. Take care. All right. If you
0: have found this information helpful and empowering, I would strongly encourage you to hop over to www.crunchyallergist.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we dive into all things allergy, autoimmunity, and anti-inflammatory living. Thanks so much for tuning in. I look forward to talking again next week.